This section of Ecclesiastes that we're going to look at together this morning is, is perhaps the most timeless of any of the, the other sections that this book contains. And that's saying quite a lot because there's so much about this book that you read and you say, okay, that could have been written today. And the reason why this section is perhaps the most timeless is because it's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that Solomon goes from the 30,000-foot view down to the weeds when it comes to the subject of the areas that he looked for satisfaction, meaning purpose, fulfillment, joy in his life. Last week, he was hovering, and he was up at that distance, and he was zoomed out on his life saying, look, I, I, I tried it all, and I applied my heart, and what I found Ecclesiastes 1.13 is that this is an unhappy business. This is a miserable task that God has given to the children of man to try to be happy and try to be satisfied and try to be fulfilled here on this side of eternity. Well, now in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, he's going to get down into to three broad kind of bucket categories of where uh, commonly where mankind will, will search for those things, search for fulfillment, search for satisfaction, only to find at the end that it's not there. And that's not going to change. As we read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're not going to find that all of a sudden it's a different ending than it has been. We're still going to find that he's going to read through all of these things and say at the end, look, it's, it's still vanity. So maybe you ask yourselves, okay, well, why are we here and why are we studying this again? Well, it's because we want to flip it on its head a little bit and understand, like Ecclesiastes 1.13 says, God has given the children of man this task. And so as we think about these three broad categories, and those categories are the areas of, uh, of accomplishment, the area of wealth, and then also the area of, of just bliss. As we think about those three buckets, we need to understand that God has placed within us a desire for those three things, but why has he placed that desire in us? He's placed that desire in us ultimately to drive us to him. So what I want us to do this morning is to read this section of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and not just walk away with what we already know, it's vanity, but to walk away saying, okay, then why did God give us those desires? If they're not going to fulfill us, what should that tell us? What should that do within us? How should we use those desires that God has given us ultimately to be driven to him? But before we get to the text, just again, really quick to go through our goals, I want us to love this book. In loving this book, I want us to, to love life here on earth, this life under the sun, life lived pursuing some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. Not all of them are, are bad. Not all of them are wrong. And yet we can learn through Solomon to, to love this life that we live under the sun. The third is to, to learn from death. Death is coming for every single one of us should the Lord not return ahead of time. And we don't need to passively wait for that to happen to us. We need to actively learn from the reality that our lives will end and none of us know when that will be. And so how should that impact the way that we live our lives now? Ecclesiastes gives us that understanding. And then also to, to loosen our grip on the things of the world. And, and that's what this section is really after. Solomon has his pastoral pry bar in his hands and he's beginning to to work at our grip on some of the things that we hold on to and we say, I, I have to have this. This is where my hope is. This is where my meaning is. This is where my joy is. If I don't have this, then I don't know what I have at all. Solomon's going to begin to loosen our grip on that in this section. And then finally, to be prepared for the Bema seat. Like Solomon says at the end of the book, the end of the matter, all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed and every thought into judgment, whether good or evil. So we want to be ready for that 2 Corinthians 5.10 day, that, that judgment seat of Christ, when we will stand there not to be judged as far as heaven and hell, but as a believer to stand there to be judged and say, okay, let's pass your life's works 
through the flame and see what comes out on the other side. And that's what Ecclesiastes is going to help us do. In this section, though, Ecclesiastes is about, again, now he's, he's, he's getting after what does it look like? What are some of the areas that he explored and came to the conclusion that life is fleeting? So grab your Bibles and let's begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 3 together. Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched my heart with how to cheer my body with wine and my heart, with my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon begins and he says, look, I, I'm gonna test my heart. That word test is kind of our, our concept of the, the scientific method. I'm gonna experiment with this. I'm gonna give this a, a shot. I'm gonna see if this, I'm gonna put it into practice and see if it will actually work. There was a, a, a practice, there was a, a tradition where the sage of the time, the sage in the ancient world, which Solomon would have qualified for that as the wisest man on earth at the time, they would essentially push back from their table metaphorically and they would observe a given topic, observe a, a given subject. And they would look at it from different kinds of angles, like we talked about last week, that, that searching deep and searching wide and looking at it from multiple angles. The sage would do that with the subject that they were considering, and then they would draw their conclusions, and then they would go to their followers, and they would pass on their conclusions to their followers. Well, that's what Solomon's doing here. That's what he says when I, I made it, I decided I would test my heart. This is the sage, Solomon. And he's examining this topic, this subject. And the topic or the subject before him is the subject of pleasure. I'm going to test my heart with pleasure. It's a word in the Hebrew that means joy or exuberance. We find it in other passages like Genesis 31, 27, where Laban says, Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And you did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with, here's the word, mirth. That's not a word we often use. In fact, it's a word that sounds the opposite of what it means. I don't want to be somebody who's mirthful. That doesn't sound like a good thing, right? But to, to, to have mirth is to have joy, to have laughter, to have frivolity, to have celebration, to have a, an atmosphere that's almost a party. And it's the same word that's translated pleasure here in Ecclesiastes. So it's this idea of, of, of celebration, of joyfulness, of, of happy-go-lucky, come what may. There's not a care in the world. That's, that's the concept. It appears in Zephaniah 3.17 where it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. There's the concept. Gladness, there's our word. Rejoice over you with gladness. He's going to rejoice over you. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Again, the celebration, the joyfulness, the frivolity there, right? That's what Solomon's after. He wants to test his heart with pleasure. To test his heart with mirth. Well, how far did he go with that? Look down the page in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 at verse 10. He says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So not only did Solomon set himself about this, but he says there in the text that he actually was successful. I set my heart to, to experience this. I kept no pleasure from him, and I, I actually experienced this pleasure. 
And so we're going to learn, well, Solomon, what was the outcome of that? What was the conclusion of that? What was your result of that? And he says in verse 3, going even further, he says, look, I, I even searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. But then this caveat, he says, my heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. When he says here uh, to, to cheer my body with wine, right, it's that concept of coming back home after a long day of work and having a glass of wine to take the edge off, to relax, to celebrate, to, again, enjoy life, experience that frivolity, that, that ease of the nerves, that ease of anxiety. That's what Solomon's doing there. And then he says, even to, to lay hold on folly. And there are some commentators that believe that Solomon is implying here that he experimented with drunkenness. But I think the phrase right before that, when he says, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, implies that I don't, I don't believe that Solomon was just letting himself go and becoming a full-blown lush. I think this was Solomon experimenting even to the, the point of the, the, for lack of a better term, the, the bar scene, the pub scene, where you would walk into the tavern and see the smoke-filled room and the men bellied up to the bar and they're raising a glass to one another and they're just, uh, th- there's not a care in the world and they're, they're enjoying life, at least on the surface, right? See, when it says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom, somebody came up last night and said, well, how can that be? If wis- this is wisdom from God, how can Solomon be using wisdom from God and yet engaging in these activities? And There's a difference, right, between the wisdom that is the fear of God that he talks about in the book of Proverbs and then the wisdom that Solomon exercised when the woman, two women came to him with the baby. Do you remember that scene? And they bring the child and both are claiming the child. And so Solomon says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half. And the biological mom, the true mom of the child says, hey, whoa, no, we're not going to do that. She can have the child. That, that's that worldly wisdom. That's that earthly wisdom. That was also part of the wisdom that Solomon possessed. And so that's the type of wisdom that Solomon's applying here as he's examining these various venues of pleasure. So he's giving himself over to some of these things, but not to the point of losing his ability to, to think clearly. Not to the, to the point of losing sober-mindedness here. But he's still exploring, still looking, still pulling back the curtain on this area of life, this area of blissfulness, this happy-go-lucky, no care in the world. Can I drown my sorrows in the next round? Can I just be happy and, and carefree? That's what he's looking and saying, is there significance? Is there meaning there? But the problem that Solomon runs into is the same problem that everyone runs into that looks for bliss here on earth, and that is that bliss ends, right? That night out with the fellows ends, and then you've got to get up and go to work the next morning. That happiness doesn't last. That, that, that joy, that bliss, that carefree doesn't last. That there's going to be something that pops up that, that destroys it, that pops the bubble. There's an anxiety that's there that you're going to eventually have to face. It, it can't last. And see, the, the thing is that I think what God is, is doing here by creating in us a desire for that bliss is he's saying, look, there's a, a bliss that is coming, but it's not to be found here. And so that's the first thing that I want us to do this, this morning, man, is to realize point number one, Recognize that that true bliss is eternal and not temporal. God has given the the children of man this unhappy business to be busy with. And part of that is I want to be happy. That's part of the unhappy business that God has given me. I want to be happy and I want to be happy here on earth. God's telling us it's not going to happen. Why? Because it's fleeting. It's vanity. Your happiness here is, is, is steam off the cup of coffee. It's here and then it's gone. You can't lay hold of it. You can't hold on to it. It's going to evaporate. It's going to be gone as quickly as it came. 
But still, God gave us this desire for happiness, this desire for joy. And we need to ask ourselves, okay, why then, God? Well, it's because he wants to drive our attention and our affection to him to say, look, there's going to come a day where you know true mirth. You know true joy. You know true happiness. You know true frivolity. But that day's not here. It's going to come when you're with me. And so he's wanting to, to pull us and drive us to himself. This look to escape through frivolity and through happiness and through the things that numb the senses is, is all too common today, isn't it? Imagine if you would, for a moment, if, if coronavirus wasn't here on the, the Super Bowl Sunday, walking into BJ's. And you've got the restaurant, but then over on the right side, you've got the bar. And imagine if the bar was packed and there were all kinds of people that were packed into the bar and they were ready to watch the game. And you go up and you saddle up next to one of the guys and you lean over to the guy and you say, hey, would you like to talk about your standing with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Hey, can I tell you about the Ten Commandments and how you're indicted as a sinner by breaking all of them? Hey, can, can we talk about your eternal fate right now? He's going to look at you and say, get lost, right? Don't be such a buzzkill. Why do we have to talk about those things? Don't, let's not deal with the, these heavy issues right now. I'm just here to enjoy myself. I'm here to, to, to get a break. I'm here to, take a re to, to just rest. I'm here to, to not think about hard things right now. I just want to be distracted. I just want to enjoy myself. I'm just here to watch the game. Don't bug me. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. I'm not interested in any of that. And then he's going to go back to his beer. That's our world, right? So many people in this world live from that moment to the next time they can get back to that moment. And they're white-knuckling it through the work week, white-knuckling it through the rest of their lives, just trying to, to make it through in a way that is, is functioning so they can get to the next place where they can forget about life and escape into a world where their problems disappear, at least until the hangover kicks in. And then that cycle just starts back again. In 2019, a Pew Research study found that 45 to 50 percent, 45 to 50 percent of college and young adults surveyed said that alcohol was among the top problems that their peers faced, alcohol and drugs. And then they said, you know what number one is? Number one is anxiety and depression. Well, those two things are inseparably connected to one another. We live in a world that is a world filled with anxiety and depression. And so what do people do so often? They look for a way to numb the senses so that they don't have to wrestle with the reality of what's making them anxious and what's making them depressed. Their hope is in the bottom of the bottle, not in an empty cross and an empty tomb. And they chase over and over and over again, whether it's alcohol or drugs, or let's talk outside of those two. How about pornography can serve that as well as this temporal escape for somebody. To say, I want to escape into the world of my fantasies and I want to numb my senses. Pornography, men, really is a drug when you think about it. It's used for the same purposes as alcohol and drugs are. Well, maybe some other ones that aren't necessarily on the, the naughty list of sins. How about binge-watching television? Is it wrong to watch TV? No. Is it wrong to watch movies? No, it's not wrong to watch TV or movies. But look, if you sit down and you escape into your favorite show or you binge watch TV or you binge watch movies so that you don't have to deal with and you don't have to think about the problems facing you in life, that's where we have a problem. Sports can be the same thing. 
you invest yourself so much into your favorite sports team, you live and die by their record. You live and die by their draft. You live and die by the, the stats or whatever it may be. It's, it's an es- attempt to escape having to, to wrestle with the reality that this world is designed by God to dis- disappoint us and, and to deflate us and to leave us wanting what we can't have. See, man, that's the, what Solomon's doing here. He's looking at that going, I don't like that. And so let me see if I can find a workaround. I don't like that God designed this world to disappoint me. I don't like that God designed this world to deflate me. I don't like that this world is going to always let me down and not fulfill me. So is there bliss that I can find here? Can I escape into this world of just not having to worry about things? And Solomon says no. He doesn't leave us wondering very long what the results of his test was. Look at 2.1. But behold, this was also what? Vanity. It's vanity. And so then, okay, Solomon, what do you want us to do with this? What do you want us to learn from this? And the answer is that we need to recognize and understand that our bliss is eternal and not temporal. That God has created us for joy and happiness and mirth, but that is going to be when we are, are with him for all of eternity, not when we're here. And in the meantime, the enemy is more than willing to distract us while we're here by throwing trinkets at us, trying to say, hey, maybe this will satisfy Try this. This will make you happy. This will do it. Oh, that didn't work. Do this over here. Try this. And he's more than happy to, to get us chasing all of these things as long as he can get us off the path of the straight and narrow. This is the, the beckon. This is the call of Vanity Fair from the Pilgrim's Progress. Come, put your feet up for a while. Enjoy yourself. Take a break from your journey. Stay here. Enjoy things here. Man, we are aliens and strangers here. There should be, along with that, meant, that, that metaphor of us being aliens and strangers, the intended impact of that is that we should be uncomfortable here. If I'm a foreigner and I'm behind enemy lines, which is what we are, I can't relax. And I shouldn't look to relax. I'm not going to set up my house and try to paint my, my white picket fence again. What should we be doing here then? What does happiness look like while we're here, while we're waiting for that Revelation 21 bliss that's coming? How about Psalm chapter one? How does it begin in verse one? What's the first word? Blessed. It's the Hebrew word asher, asher. It's the word that means happy, fortunate. So God is telling us, look, you wanna be happy. What does he say? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of or walk in the ways of the wicked, or sit in the counsel of the, 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 the wicked, failing to, to grab the, the particular words there. But then he goes on and he says, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Right? That, men, is what we need to be doing. You want happiness? You want delight right now? It's in fearing God and keeping his commandments. Remember who wrote Psalm 1? It was, it was Solomon's dad, King David. And then what does Solomon write at the end of Ecclesiastes? The end of the matter, all has been heard. What? Fear God and keep his commandments. Delight in the law of the Lord. And so recognize, men, that our bliss is not meant to be experienced here, but meant to be experienced in eternity with God. Bliss didn't satisfy. Well, what about accomplishment? Look at verse four. I made great works and I built houses and I planted vineyards. For myself, and I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. This is the 
the pursuit of accomplishment. And much like the pursuit of bliss, this is common in our, our world today as well. Think back in, in history of the pharaohs and the pyramids and the obelisks. Or think of Nebuchadnezzar and the giant 90 foot by 9 foot golden statue that he set up on the plain of Dura to celebrate himself and all of his accomplishments. That's what Solomon is trying here. He says, well, maybe I can create for myself this resume of all of these great things that I've done. Maybe I can establish this kingdom and, and look at my kingdom and be satisfied with all of my works. Derek Kidner, a commentator, said this was a secular garden of Eden that he created with no forbidden fruit. A secular garden of Eden with no forbidden fruit that Solomon has laid out for himself. And he's saying, look, maybe this is going to satisfy me now. I understand that, that bliss is temporal. I, I get that. And that's, that's not going to do it. But maybe I can be satisfied knowing that I'm going to build all this stuff and this is going to be impressive. And people for years and years are going to look at this and say, wow, look at that. That's amazing. And look at that. Solomon did that. But his conclusion was the same. Vanity. These are fleeting monuments of vanity. Man, just like Solomon, we can be ambitious for our own resumes and want to build our own resumes and say, look, this is going to be, this is going to make me, this is going to make me successful. Once I achieve this level of success in my career, once I achieve this neighborhood, once I get this car, once I get this pool, once I get this family, and, and we're, we're, we're doing what Solomon did, we're just not building vineyards. Our works look different, but we're doing the same thing. And we're trying to say, look, my worth is in my resume. My satisfaction, my value is in what I've done with my life. But we need to realize what Solomon came to understand, and that is that, that that's not going to satisfy. Because here's the fact, man, it's point number two this morning. Your greatest accomplishments are temporal. In other words, they're bound to this earth. They're confined within the realm of, of time, and time will destroy everything. They're not eternal. They're temporal, not eternal. Men, do you know what's not going to be asked of you at the gates of eternity? Hey, can I see your resume? There is no monster, there is no indeed in eternity. Your resume, your list, your accomplishments aren't going to matter there. And in fact, there was a group that thought that it would matter. And Jesus talked about that group in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus begins in verse 21 in, in a, a chilling statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, now notice what they're appealing to here. They're appealing to their works, their resume. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's an impressive resume. That blows my resume out of the water. I haven't cast demons out of anybody. I haven't done mighty works, miracles. I haven't done any of that. So this, this group is there and they're like, hey, look, I'm ready to be led into heaven. Here's my resume. But Jesus says, wait a minute, there's a problem. You're going to depart from me because it has nothing to do with what you did in my name. It has everything to do with whether or not I knew you and I didn't know you. And so they're gone and all of their accomplishments are gone. 
The fact is, men, when we die, there's only one resume that we need and only one accomplishment that matters, and it's not ours. The only accomplishment with eternal ramifications left an empty cross and an empty tomb. That's the only accomplishment that anyone has done on earth that matters eternally. Or rather, that has any bearing on where you spend eternity. Everything else you do will, will be lost and forgotten. Even the great pyramids, right? Do they still stand? Sure. But could you tell me who's buried inside? I can't. King Tut and something or other. The accomplishments of man fade into history and are forgotten. Again, think to your great-grandfather. Tell me what the greatest thing that he ever did with his life was. Maybe a couple of you could. My guess is the majority of you have no clue what he even did for a living. It doesn't matter, man. It's fleeting. If you're living for your resume, you're going to build your earthly kingdom. You're going to die and your earthly kingdom is going to crumble and you're going to be forgotten along with your kingdom. And unless you have a grip on the one accomplishment that matters, which is what Christ did for you, you're going to spend eternity apart from him in hell, regretting that you lived for that earthly resume for every single moment that you're there. None of it comes with us. None of it comes with us. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 gets into his earthly resume. And he says this, he says, If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul's saying, you want to compare resumes? Let's do it. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his pedigree. Paul says, you want to talk about pedigree? Man, I'll destroy you every single day of the week. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I fulfill every requirement. I was even circumcised on the right day. So I was, I'm good to go. Like you want to say who's a good Jew? I'm a good Jew, Paul's saying. Okay, Paul, but that wasn't really you. You didn't have any control of that. Okay, well, let's talk about what Paul had control over. As to the law of Pharisee, in other words, an expert, trained under Gamaliel, he doesn't even get to that in, the, in here, but that was to, to be trained under Harvard of the day. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, passion for the Lord, I was a persecutor of the church. We read that and we think, well, that's not a good thing. Paul, why are you boasting in that? Well, it would have been a good thing because he was saying, look, the reason why I was so vehement against the church was I thought it was an attack against Yahweh, the God of Israel. And my zeal and my passion for Yahweh, the God of Israel, because I was a Pharisee, led me to look at that as a threat and to say, I'm going after them and I'm going to stop that with whatever I can. So Paul's saying, look, I, I was passionate for the Lord. If anything, anyone was passionate for the Lord, I was passionate for the Lord. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
here I want you to think of the book of Daniel, where Daniel's investigated by all of his worst enemies. They come and they look at his life and they shake his life out and they open up every closet in his house, so to speak. And they turn his pockets inside out. And it says in the book of Daniel that they were able to find nothing against him unless they were going to find it in relation to his relationship with the Lord. That's what Paul's saying here. It's like, look, as far as I'm aware, Paul's not saying that he was a sinless man, but he's saying, look, as far as I'm aware, when I, if, if I knew of a law, I was keeping that law. But then he gets to his conclusion in verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as what? As loss. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I picture Paul taking that resume and tearing it up and throwing it in the furnace. This doesn't matter anymore. Don't be impressed with this is what Paul's saying. In fact, he goes on later to say that it's dung. That is a very kind translation of that word, by the way. Man, the, the call from Jesus is not a call to come follow me and build your resume as you follow me. What is it a call to? No, come and take up your cross and follow me. Come and die to yourself, die to your glory, die to your resume, die to your agenda and follow me. Make your life about me is what Jesus is saying. Okay, so what do we do? Do we give up ambition? Do we let go of all of our, our, everything that we've accomplished? Do we forsake all of that? No. But you do begin to ask yourself, okay, how am I living for all of these things in a way that's following Christ, that's exalting Jesus? How is my resume boasting in Jesus, boasting in God and not boasting in me? How do the things that I've done set me up to serve God better? And not focus as much on myself. Bliss, ambition, neither of those. Accomplishment, neither of those last. Neither of those satisfy. This third one, though, is perhaps the most common. And it's the pursuit of wealth. He says in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. His list is impressive. They're slaves, herds, and flocks. Remember, God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, right? a testimony to the wealth of God. Well, Solomon might not say a thousand hills, but I've got the cattle on maybe like 940 hills. He was a wealthy man. Silver and gold. Treasure from foreign lands. That's what he means by the wealth of kings and provinces. That he went out and, and, and through trade and through conquest, he, he received treasure from, from foreign nations as well. Entertainment. He said, I had men and women to come in and sing for me. And then, of course, he has what all men crave from time to time, and that is what? Sex, right? I had the concubines, which he says euphemistically there are the delight of the sons of men. Solomon had it all at his fingertips. He had the money to get whatever he wanted is essentially what he's arguing here. And this is his final bucket that he's exploring here. He lived the rock star life to the extreme. 
No limitations. And remember again what he says in verse 10. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. So Solomon is, is a man with endless resources at his disposal and he's using them to, to acquire whatever he wants. He's going after wealth with everything that he has, saying maybe if I amass enough wealth, if I amass enough women, if I amass enough entertainment, that's going to satisfy me. And, and tragically, as I was studying this this week, I, I began to think about the life and trajectory of Tiger Woods. Late 90s, early 2000s, we're watching Tiger come on the scene and everybody is thinking to themselves, wow, this is amazing. And if you're a golf fan, when Tiger was at the, the, the peak of his career, it was amazing to watch the guy. I'm, I'm more of an underdog kind of guy. I like to root for the team that's not supposed to win because the team that's supposed to win bugs me because it's not my team, right? But when Tiger was playing, it was different. I wanted to see Tiger win and I wanted to see him dominate because he was phenomenal. It was amazing, right? When somebody else won, you're like, you're not supposed to win. Tiger's supposed to win. Jack Nicholas's major record. We all thought to ourselves, there's no way this guy doesn't break this record. And when that was Tiger... We always used to think to ourselves, man, what must that be like just to live a week in Tiger's shoes? Master's week, by the way. I want to live a, a week in Tiger's shoes. I want to go out and play Augusta. I want to win that tournament. I want to know what that's like just to be Tiger Woods for just, just a day, a Sunday, wearing a red shirt and to pump my fist and to get all excited about winning a golf tournament. That would be amazing. Well, then what happened? The news broke. And there was the car accident and there was the wife with the three iron in her hand. And all of a sudden, Tiger's true life got exposed for everyone to see. That was, it was a life that he was, was chasing money and sex and fame and pleasure. All of these things. And none of it worked. None of it worked. And in the aftermath of it all, nobody was saying, man, I would love to be Tiger Woods right now. He still had the money. He was still a golfer. But we saw behind the curtain. The facade shattered. And we realized that what was left was nothing that would satisfy. That's what Solomon is telling us here, men. If, if your hope is in money, if your hope is in your treasure, that's not going to satisfy well, again, what do I do then? Do I sell everything and go live in a shack in the, the desert? No. Who gave you your treasure? God did, yes? God gave Solomon his treasure. The problem is not having the things. The problem is having the wrong view of the things that God has given you. The problem is not the gift. The problem is looking to the gift for what only the gift giver can ultimately provide you. That's what Solomon's indicting here. That's what Solomon's saying is vanity here. If you're living for wealth, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be unsatisfied. Think of just a, a couple names. Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Musk is on schedule to, to I don't know if you're on schedule to become the, next, the first trillionaire, but I guess that's a schedule he keeps. But he's projected to be the world's first trillionaire. Do you think he's going to stop there? Say, okay, I'm done. 
I missed the headline where Bill Gates came out and said, hey, everybody, if you want to know how much money you need to actually be satisfied in life, here it is. It hasn't come because he's not there, right? The world's wealthiest men continue to chase more wealth. Why? Because they know that if they stop, they're going to be faced with the cold, hard reality that what they've done and what they've accomplished and the wealth that they have doesn't satisfy them. No, rather, God has given us the things that he's given us to be used for him and for his glory. And that's the mindset that we need to take away with this indictment from Solomon here, saying, look, wealth won't satisfy. Okay, so what do we do with the treasure that we have? Well, we use it to glorify God, which was the original intent that he gave it to us to begin with. Point number three this morning is this. Appreciate the eternal potential of your temporal treasure. Appreciate the eternal potential of your temporal treasure. 1 Kings 3.13, this is the Lord speaking to Solomon after Solomon had asked for wisdom. God came to Solomon and said, ask what you would have and I'll give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask for the wealth. Solomon didn't ask for the power. Solomon didn't ask for the works of the kingdom or anything else like that. Solomon asked for wisdom. And in verse 12, God says, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you wisdom that's going to exceed the wisdom of anyone else on earth. But then here's what he says in verse 13. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. I give you wealth. I give you riches and honor. See, the problem was not that that Solomon had money. It wasn't that he had silver and gold. That's not the problem. The problem was what he was using it for during this phase of his life, that he was looking to that to satisfy him. And God said, no, that's not why I gave it to you. I gave it to you so that you would be a wise steward. And that's the word there. That's what it all boils down to. We are stewards of everything that God has given to us. We are stewards of everything that we own. Every last cent in our bank accounts, God has given to us. We are stewards of that. We are stewards of our house. We are stewards of our car. We are stewards of our phone, our computer, our tablet. We are stewards of our 401k. We are stewards of all of this. We don't own any of it. There's not a square inch in our lives over which we can hold back and say, God, this is mine, not yours. I earned it hands off. And if we begin to think that way, we need to go back to Psalm 139 and remember what Psalm 139 says, what David says there when he says, look, in your books were written every one of the days of my life when as yet there was not one of them that had come to pass. God has given you your days and set those in firm number, which means he's given you your breath that you're going to breathe and is established and determined when you'll stop breathing. Men, if you're dependent on God for your breath, you're dependent on God for everything. And so we need to think about these things. Think about, for instance, your house. How are you stewarding your house for the glory of God? Is having a house a bad thing? Absolutely not. It's a great thing. Be thankful for it and rejoice in it. And let your wife go to Hobby Lobby and put up things in it. That's fine. But the question is, okay, how are you using that for the glory of God? What about your car? How are you using your car for the glory of God? It might be good to just spend some time in your small groups talking about this this morning. 
Is it wrong to drive a nice car? No, it's not wrong to drive a nice car. Is it wrong to have a, a clean car? No, you should have a clean car. But are, are you glorifying God with your vehicle? What does that even look like? How do I do that? Maybe you guys can, can brainstorm together some of the things. How about your phone, your computer, your tablet? Those can be good things. They can be really bad things too. How are you stewarding your iPhone for the glory of God? Your retirement. How are you planning to retire for God's glory? What does that look like? That's the mindset. If, if we're going to enjoy the things that God has given us, men, we have to have that mindset. Otherwise, we're always going to be dissatisfied with what we have. But if we begin looking at what we have as, God, you've given this to me as a tool to glorify you, then we'll become much more grateful for the things that we have and content with what we have because we'll realize it's not ultimately for us, but for him. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Man, God has given you these resources that you have to be invested temporally for eternal rewards. that are way better than anything else we can have on this earth. Way better. Because we know where everything on this earth is going, don't we? Sometimes it's crassly put, well, it's all going to burn. Yeah, it may be crass, but it's true. Second Peter 3, 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for what? Runs with Schmeyer, starts with an F. Fire, right? Start, stored up for fire. It is all going to burn. Like Swindoll said, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. And it's all going to burn. Well, Solomon's conclusion, looking back, he says, look, I, I became great. I surpassed everyone else who were before me in Jerusalem. Beyond that, I, I had all this wisdom. My wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was fleeting. It was vanity and chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Nothing to be gained under the sun. The fact that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes kind of proves his conclusion, doesn't it? If he had found the answer, we're not, we don't have the book of Ecclesiastes. But the fact that we have it shows that we, we know, as Paul Harvey put it, right, the rest of the story. So what's the benefit for us in studying this book? Well, the benefit for us in studying this book is learning from Solomon and understanding that part of Solomon's goal was to drive our attention away from what's under the sun to the, the one who is over it. Part of Solomon's goal in Ecclesiastes is to get our mind off the here and now and get it on God. To shift our focus from the temporal to the eternal. And to cause us to begin to ask the question, what does it look for me to now live for him and not for me? 
And the ultimate answer for that he gives when he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Right? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this book, thankful for the, the ways it, it, it bumps into us and into our idols and confronts us. And uh, Lord, we read it, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're going to feel some friction there. And God, I just pray that we would respond to that well by, with humility, repenting from our sin and putting our trust and our faith in, in, in you as our ultimate provider, God. That we would let go of our idols, let go of these things that we've chased, let go of these things that we've lived for, that we loosen our grip on some of these things, Lord, and, and understand that true ultimate satisfaction is to be found with you. And we know that that day is coming, and we long for that day. We look forward to that day, Lord. But in the meantime, may we be faithful here. May we be men who, like David said, are delighting in the law of the Lord. May we be men like Solomon commanded us to be, who are fearing you, God, and, and keeping your commandments. And may we be found faithful to those tasks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.